Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host. Thank you so much for joining me wherever you are in the world right now. I am so excited about my guest today. It's been one of my passions to have him on the show, Dr. Peter Fenwick. Dr. Peter Fenwick is an expert on near-death experiences and end-of-life experiences. Dr. Fenwick is a neuropsychiatrist and neuropsychologist who is, who is known for his pioneering studies of end-of-life phenomena. He's published several books, including The Art of Dying, The Truth, The Light, and The Hidden Door. This is his story, and this is his passion. Dr. Peter Fenwick, I am so honoured and excited to have you on the show today. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm really excited too, because um, I'm half Australian, and I hear you're in Australia. Yes, I am. <laughs> and so that, that is wonderful. In fact, I, I believe you're in Sydney. Yes. Um, I'm not sure that's a good choice. I mean, it's a fantastic choice, opera it's, and everything. It's temporary. It's temporary. <laughs> <laughs> but Melbourne is where my mother came from. Oh, okay. And she was the first woman surgeon uh, to go to England and obtain her Royal College of Edinburgh surgery, higher surgery degree. Oh, so wow. That's I've amazing. had something to live up to. <laughs> Gosh, you have. Well, I've already introduced you in your introduction, but if you wouldn't mind just giving a brief, uh, I'm sure everyone knows you, you're world famous and I think you're amazing, but just a brief background of what you do. Uh, yes. Um, as, as I say, my mother was a surgeon and so I wanted to be a doctor from a very early age. And uh, as I got older, I could see where I wanted to go. And that is to understand the brain and the mind. And so my training went through uh, Queen Square, which is a neurology hospital, and through the Maudsley Hospital, which is a psychiatric hospital. So I am a neuropsychiatrist. I'm trained in both of those. My life has been uh, looking at things to do with the brain, the mind, and consciousness. Um, wonderful. And, and how you scientifically work the two together or whether they're separate. My, I guess my first question is, what happens when we die from all your amazing research? And it's a big question. That could just be one episode, but <laughs> what happens okay. when we die? Uh, well, let's look at that. Um, first of all, uh, it depends if I'm looking at it from the point of view of our reductionist science or if I'm using now quantum mechanical science because they both give totally different answers. Mm -hmm. So let's look at it from the reductionist science point of view. Well, as you come up to death, you go through a whole set of stages. First one is premonitions. In other words, you may get some inkling that it's going to happen. And I have a number of people who have 
uh, told me their stories. One was uh, a lady who woke up in the middle of the night terrified, absolutely terrified, because her daughter, she knew, was going to die. And um, she looked around, and her daughter, in fact, was in bed with her. And so she said, well, it must have just been a dream. But sadly, it wasn't, because two days later, a car came and uh, unfortunately killed her. And she reports that she had exactly the same feelings that she had in the dream. So that's one. There was, uh, in England, there's a, a, or there used to be a cold tip in the village called Aberfan. And this tip one day slithered down over the primary school, killing most of the children. And I really feel sorry for this mother because um, her daughter two or three days before had come to her and said, don't worry about me, mum. When I die, I'll be with my friends. And she said, oh, don't be silly. <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that will happen. And then on the day that it occurred, she said to her, I don't want to go to school today because something horrid may happen. And the mother said, no, come on, dear. You know you have to go to school. She went, and of course she's killed. So th those are two premonitions of uh, forthcoming death. They, they aren't always as short as that. I have one from somebody who um, his wife, I got it from his wife, actually, she said that uh, one day he came down and said, I got to put my affairs in order. So he did. And um, then about six months later, when everything had all been sorted out, his company sent him on a trip to um, overseas. The plane crashed. It was a little plane. And he unfortunately was killed. But he seemed to know he was going to. And if you ask the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama will tell you that we all know when we're going to die and we get about a two-year warning. And if you ask him how we know, he says, ah, oh, because there's a change in your breathing, a change in your thinking and so on. Well, these are obviously subtle things that yogic masters know. <laughs> I don't think most of us do because I certainly don't won't be able to do that myself, I think, to see a subtle change in breathing two years before I die. Any rate, you guess you can. And that raises the question, is time linear or is it not? So that's one of the questions which we'll just leave on the table for the moment. Then after um, the, the premonitions, we come to the actual dying process itself. So you've been given the news, you're going to die, uh, and uh, a reservation's been made in the hospice for you. So what do you do? You find out about it. You learn about the dying process. When I started this in about 2000, 2002, there wasn't very much known, but now there is. There's loads known. And so what you can do is you look it up and see exactly what's going to happen. And there's something called deathbed anxiety. Deathbed anxiety occurs to all those who can't let go. So what's this letting go? Letting go means that everything 
that you have been attached to, you have to let go. Look, you're not going to take your friends in Australia with you, are you? <laughs> so you have to let go of those relationships and your friends in France, for that matter, too. They all have to go. <laughs> and there is a period uh, when you have to do this cleaning. I think looking at it as cleaning is, is a very good way. And there is a palliative care theologian in Switzerland called Monica Renz, R-E-N-Z. And those of you who are interested in death and dying would do well to get her books. She's written three or four books on, on dying. And she um, talks about uh, transition, uh, pre-transition, transition and post-transition. And cleaning occurs in pre-transition. This is, oh, can be four or five days before you actually die. And you have to give everything up. And if you don't give it up, you get anxious. Mm -hmm. If you get anxious, you get very anxious. And if you get anxious, what will your doctor do? He'll zap you with midazolam and you'll, you will miss all the dying process because you will be sort of unconscious. So um, get, your, get your cleaning right. Now, this is helped with in the approximately the last two weeks before you die, when you see deathbed visitors. And they're fantastic. Um, they come and they say hi to you. And who are they? Uh, family members, your mother, friends, who you have a very good relationship with. Um, all of them may come along and um, uh, sit, on, sit at your bedside. Sometimes they sit on your bed. Why on your bed? Because it's very comforting. I mean, these are, these are the loved ones that have already transitioned. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Your dead <laughs> mum, your dead sister, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, they will also often give you a time. And as your mum gets up and goes, she says, well, I'll be back in three days and we'll go on a journey together. And uh, so you can actually say, mum, don't come back then. Uh, because my son is coming from Australia <laughs> <laughs> and it'll take him a little while to get here. And so he, um, she may, can say yes, but she, you can't negotiate um, a party in the hospice. Then come back because there's a hosp uh, hospice party on Friday. Or right. 10. No, no, she won't, she won't do that, but she will, in fact, put it off for something which you feel is is very important to you now uh so you get the deathbed visitors common yes 90 percent and for those of your listeners who want to see uh, uh pictures of a woman talking about her deathbed visitors there's a very good one on new channel a youtube channel called uh buffalo it comes from buffalo and so if you put death and buffalo, <laughs> I'm sure you'll, you'll get, <laughs> yes, you might, you might find lots of death of buffaloes, of course, but at any rate, uh, you will eventually find it. And it's a nice one, which has been put up there. So uh, you go now into a phase, this is in the last week, before you, um, before you die, 
and you go into a period of transition uh, slightly different from the transition i was talking about before this is when you actually leave the hospice sometimes with a deathbed visitor and go into an area of love and light this this is how people describe it and in this area of love and light you meet again a deathbed uh, i mean dead relatives and also the spiritual beings who are there to meet you and welcome you and they um uh, sort of prepare you for what's going to happen so love and light is the key feature of going into that transition then you come back again into the hospice and you may make this uh, journey two or three times before you actually die and then we're coming up quite close to death now so i'm going to uh, do this two ways i'm going to do it through monica Renzi's transitions do you remember we were talking about pre-transition when you got to clean and clean and clean and clean and clean and drop it all because it's terribly important and then you come in uh in about the day before um you actually die or maybe 48 hours something like that you're in the transition stage and this is the point at which your egoic structures within your brain start to collapse and it's really interesting it's, it's not terribly pleasant because uh, none of us are used to our egoic structures collapsing <laughs> because that's our sense of i right and in fact what's happening is we become non-dual non-duality is a state of consciousness which we're beginning to understand more about but you start to fuse with the universe you and the universe become one and so it's love and light and the fusing of you with the universe and that's in post-transition and from there most people die and uh we've had monica rents over to the uk and we've talked to her about this because surely just before death like that, I mean, within a day, people uh, aren't able to give a good account. And that's not the point. The point is that uh, they uh, can answer with verbal sounds, not necessarily words and uh, gestures. And if you ask them, uh, are you happy? They, ah, yes it's a very nice state to be in and from that then of course you um uh, actually die and what attitude should you have you have an attitude of sinking in sinking in is very important you actually sink into the death the death process and um then uh, you will in fact make your transition and something very happy interesting happens then to a number of people and that is usually if you have somebody you want to uh, go to and uh, leave a message with and these are called uh, deathbed coincidences because they're coincident with the time that you're actually dying and in the study we did of this uh, they were all within half an hour and about 90 percent were linked at, at the time of death so 
what you do, a nice story. Here's one from, well, I'm choosing Australian stories, aren't okay. I? <laughs> <laughs> We're on the roll on the theme. <laughs> um, and this one is a, a lady who's in Australia. She's sleeping very happily. And you know what happens when you sleep in Australia. You're live and alert in the UK. And um, in her dream, her son came to her dripping wet. And as he came to her, and you quite often see this, uh, his form changed. And he became, uh, there's white light surrounded him. As soon as I say white light, you automatically say, and the feeling of love, because they go very closely together. And as he came closer and closer to her, he said, don't, don't you worry, mum, I'm okay. And this is one of the things about the deathbed coincidence, they give a message and that's it. And she knew that he died, but she obviously, um, she couldn't uh, ring at that point. So she waited till she could get in touch with him. And you remember he was dripping wet. Well, in fact, his death was by drowning because he came off his boat um, at that time. So th that's a fairly well attested deathbed coincidences. And uh, what people who uh, just accept reductionist science only say, well, of course, there are thousands of people dying every day. And sometime you're going to have a lucky dream. No, no, it's not like that. You know perfectly well uh, what it is, and you don't report a deathbed coincidence unless you actually have one, because they are very, very meaningful. Um, and then we come to the actual uh, room in which people are dying. And that's interesting, because a whole lot of phenomena occurred. And the medical profession was rather slow to get onto these in a formal way. And I used to, with my co-workers, go into a hospice um, and ask the doctor if we could look for deathbed visions and get details of what happens when people die, because it was a, um, a carer study. And they said, no, <laughs> of course you can come, Peter but you won't find anything here because they don't happen. But of course they do. And then at the end, we'd go back and we'd give a, a lecture on what we actually found. So uh, it's a exposure of that sort, which has changed um, the way people think about it. So what you get, you get light in the room, has a very particular quality. It um, uh, is quite often associated with love and light, love and the light. And uh, not every member of a family will see it. So what does that tell us? It's a spiritual thing. It's, it's at a different level from uh, a light which can be picked up by a camera, for example. Then you get things like animals howling, dogs at home that howl. Birds that come into the room may drop a feather, or um, a lot of birds are quite often reported by hospice staff outside the room of somebody who's actually dying. So there seems to be some sort of link there. And um, then you 
people in the room see shapes leaving the body. And then um, uh, th those are probably the main thing. And then there's another phenomenon which isn't discussed much, which is very important. Look, your mum dies, okay? Uh, she's in a hospice. And you heard this talk on passion harvest. TV already. <laughs> <laughs> passion harvest. Yes. And um, so you, you can feel when the body is empty. Um, it's, it's a very distinct feeling. One moment you look uh, at a person who's dying, the relative who's dying, and it, she is dead. And then maybe half an hour later, uh, the body is empty, it's just a casket. And um, hospices recognize this, um, but hospitals stand. And so they'll bundle your mother off to the morgue rather than just the casket, which is her dead body. So it's, it's quite interesting. And so it, it requires more patience on the part of hospice, hospitals to, to not put the bodies in the morgue so quickly. So that's a sort of short summary of uh, what's going to happen <laughs> when we die. Absolutely fascinating. And in your opinion, from all your research, once the, the 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 spirit, the soul, the consciousness actually separates from the physical body, what do you feel happens then? Oh, now that is such an interesting question. It seems that there is a coherent story which is emerging, and that is that um, uh, uh, the brain is not seen as the primary generator of consciousness. And this is where I think I said earlier that we have to look at two sciences. Mm -hmm. The first one is reductionist science. That means everything, little bits of material which flop about in the universe, quarks, photons, and they get into masses like um, cars and television sets and, and zoom cameras, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but um, that's all there is. And so where does consciousness come from? Well, we don't know, but we think it's made in the brain. End of story. And this produces the most difficult problems for our neuroscience when trying to explain consciousness. You can't really. So um, I think in the last 40 years since quantum mechanics came in, but more recently, people have recognized there are a whole lot of phenomena which um, won't fit into that. And one of them is uh, entanglement. And entanglement is if you have one particle and it's, it is born with its brother, if you like, and you take one of the particles miles, miles, miles away, very, very quickly, and you can look at them both and communicate uh, the, the observation of one particle determines what will happen when you 
see the other particle. And there's an experiment by a scientist called Aspect, the Aspect Experiments. And they have proved that this is so. And so the argument is then that no longer are we restricted to the brain for consciousness. The idea now is that consciousness is universal. It's everywhere. And so now we can come back and start answering your question. <laughs> what happens when we die? Because until you got that straight, you'll say, well, it's the end. You know, brain's gone. No experience. Well, it's not like that. Uh, because there's very good evidence that the brain, in fact, um, acts as a filter. Uh, what do you mean? Well, what I'm saying, really. Well, what's it filtering? It's filtering reality. And there is a, a wonderful essay on that in the Bigelow Essays by Kastrup, pointing out that we actually never see the world. We ben see what Bernardo our... Castro. Yes. He's been Have on the show. Him? Yeah, he's great. Oh, he's great. <laughs> he's a lovely guy lovely. and he's got it absolutely right. And his essay is clarity in itself. Because what he's arguing is that the brain acts as a filter. And so when you die, your consciousness, which is manifesting itself through the brain filter, in fact, comes to join universal consciousness. And so you never die, although your brain and body do die. So uh, the, uh, this really, and I think Bigelow has done a lot to help this. Uh, you have to first of all show that reductionist science has major problems to it. And that, um, an all-inclusive science, which includes quantum mechanics, um, is, uh, is different um, because you then have a bed for consciousness, if you like, a, a, an explanation of consciousness. And so we're all conscious. We are all consciousness and we never die. That's what the current view is. And fortunately, I have about... 25 detailed essays to support that view. So it's not just one lone wolf talking about it. It's, it's uh, formally deduced in these essays. Well, thank you for explaining that in, in simple terms. You, I just want to touch on something you said briefly about reality and the brain filters our reality. Well, this could be another whole interview, but what, what is reality? What we perceive, is it real? No. Um, okay, let's do this. Um, uh, <laughs> the way that I, I like best, again, is Kastrup's article. So um, anybody who's listening to this podcast, uh, Bigelow Prize is Kastrup, <laughs> read it. And uh, to uh, shorten and simplify what he says, because his model is good, is if you're a pilot in a storm and you look out of the window of your plane, you see a storm. Um, but in actual fact, because I, I used to pilot aircraft, you know, private aircraft and do some flying, I know you don't look out of the window. What you look at is aspects of the storm which are important to you. So you look at your dashboard 
you look at your altimeter and see if you are climbing or descending, you look, make sure your speed's all right, and all that sort of thing. So you never look at the storm, and there is no way I can tell what's going on in the storm, uh, except by the dashboard, by the instruments that I have. And this is true of life. So there's no way on, uh, of knowing what is going on outside ourselves. We just know what our senses tell us, uh, whether it's hot or cold, for example, uh, whether it is pressing against us and causing pain, all that sort of thing. And this is constructed by the brain, so it's a model. We don't see reality. We don't see the storm. We just see what our senses tell us, and it's created for us by the brain. And so um, where are we in this? Well, the argument is that the brain filters absolute reality. And absolute reality is uh, a transcendent reality of which we have very good descriptions from many different people. And essentially love, light, um, and uh, very, very expansive. And people who've had these deep experiences will tell you that um, it is absolutely amazing for them and they're all marked by it in in quite quite an important way and uh that seems to be what the background of reality is when the filters get diminished to some extent so think of yourself as paddling in a pool of consciousness all day and that um try you not see to get that... caught up in the reality i i just love yeah. your analogy by the way of the pilot it's it's fantastic yes. Uh, that came from Kastrup, and I think it's such a good one. Really is. It's absolutely excellent. Fantastic. Um, I'd just like to briefly, I know you've done incredible research on near-death experience, which has certainly changed people's perception of reality. Would you mind talking a little bit about some of the research you've done on near-death experiences? Yes. Um, in fact, uh, nature gives you things. And uh, one of the things that uh, I was given was the possibility of taking part in a BBC documentary. It's called Glimpses of Death. And it was uh, 1988, and it was the first full-length documentary on near-death experiences in the UK. And uh, after it, we got um, 2,000 letters. Do you remember letters? Yeah. These things you yes, open and yes, read. Vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we got 2,000 of those from people in the UK that uh, had near-death experiences. And there were a lot of accounts there of what a near-death experience was like. And so... Um, I took 500 of those and sent out a questionnaire to them and to try and um, define exactly what goes on in a near-death experience. And uh, that went very well. In fact, we then wrote a book on that called The Truth in the Light. Everything at that time to do with near-death experiences had to have the word light in it. <laughs> it was chosen by... I'll publish, I said, it's the truth and the light. 
and that was i think on the first 350 uh, accounts that we had so we had a large sample and it was really a very comprehensive sample but of course it was a british sample and so we have to ask the question which others asked later um, is there in fact a cultural bias and the answer is yes and no uh, the, the main parts of the um, uh, experience uh, aren't culturally determined like um, leaving your body and watching the resuscitation process and uh, if you are a reductionist you're going to be in dead trouble because you will find that uh, if you look at the actual data on this um, when they leave their body um, their EEG has gone flat and their heart has stopped so the reductionists say oh well there's a little bit of brain that we couldn't see working rubbish <laughs> it doesn't work like that and they're not working they got the wrong model and then they the experiencer uh, goes down the tunnel the tunnel is interesting because some people just float through a void and that can be very frightening and a lot of negative experience of floating through the void and then you come to a light uh, and you go into the light and there you're held in perfect love and uh, you then may have 12 percent of our people had life reviews life reviews are interesting because it looks as if somebody has got a recording machine on throughout your life and they show you exactly what happened but of course it's different but because you see the effects of what you did like if you were in a fight and hit somebody you feel their pain where the blow lands if you are telling somebody off and not being kind and considerate and they are hurt by it you'll feel their pain in the life review and so uh, th that can go on uh, time in the near-death experience uh, is either extended or accelerated it's a whole life can pass by in front of your eyes very quickly and then after that uh, a lot of people will go back and wander around in the near-death reality which in our culture is rather like an english country garden and like then something behind you <laughs> your view is amazing <laughs> absolutely <Scotland>. <laughs> yeah. absolutely you walk around in that with uh, lots of lovely birds and um flowers flowers very brightly colored and so on and then um you come to a border in in what's behind me the border would probably be the loch and you know that if you go further you will in fact uh, die you'll never be able to come back and so there's usually a discussion with um, the person who uh, one of the powers that are there and they let you know that if you go on and some people have choice some people don't i think it's 30 percent um 
no, 70% who, who re are sent back and the others decide to come back. And they come back for the stupidest of reasons. One of our people um, had just done a load of washing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I've got to come back and iron it. <laughs> I can't leave now. Well, I'm sure it was very important to her. Anyway, she produced this as a reason, and that was reckoned to be a good reason. She, she hadn't had time to do the cleaning back. processes you spoke no. about earlier. On oh, absolutely <laughs> not. She was still attached to it. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, go on. No, sorry, please go on. Um, and so then there is no return journey, and you're back in your body. And remember that there are two ways of looking at near-death experience. The reductionist model, it's all in the brain. And the quantum mechanical model, which suggests that, in fact, consciousness is primary, not little bits of matter floating about. And so all this is occurring in consciousness. And that's a much better theory. Absolutely agree. I just have to briefly ask you, and I get this question asked a lot, why do some people have negative near-death experiences, in your opinion? Um, there are two or three types of near-death experience. There is one where what is going on is misinterpreted as being fearful. Uh, as talking about the void and traveling through the void. This is a very common one. Um, another one is that, in fact, what they're describing is the intensive care psychosis. I'll give you an example of that. person who... Uh, was having a near-death experience in which he could feel the flames of hell burning him. And he could, in fact, um, see devils with pitchforks, which they kept putting into him. And it was very unpleasant for him. And as he came out of his psychotic state, he recognized that the flames of hell were the heating blanket that he was lying on in intensive care. And the devils were, of course, nurses with syringes <laughs> uh, injecting him. And that, so that's the second type. And then there are some that, that are truly negative. Um, why? They're a very small minority. I don't know. It's just the way it is for them. Don't have a good explanation. Well, thank you for that. Um, I guess the question, in your opinion, again, why are we here? Why are we here in our consciousness, in our human form? What is our purpose? Huh. <laughs> Big That's question. a wide question, isn't it? <clears throat> well, you're going to get several streams of suggestions. I mean, the religious streams. We come here and... Uh, have to uh, improve ourselves in what we do and the, to learn to become loving and kind with people and not shoot them and all that sort of thing. So that is one stream. That, that actually is quite a broad one because it's picked up in different cultures and it's picked up in revelations too. Um, I think that you you come on to fringes of experience now um and these are people who have very wide experience and the the argument usually runs like this that we come into this world to learn so that's really what i've been talking about before 
and uh, the process of, of learning uh, will go on through uh, many different lives. So you'll come back again if you haven't learned it properly and uh, 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 go through it again. And this then comes into the question of why do we have this life? For example, why am I in Scotland? I'm not actually, but why does it look like I'm in Scotland? Okay. And <laughs> you are in Melbourne. Sydney. And the answer? Sydney. Yes. Oh, gosh, yes. Melbourne's yes. your favourite. You told me that. <laughs> of course, of course. And Sydney, of course, has got the Opera House and the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, and that's because you've chosen it. And there is an argument that you choose the major things in your life and then you come down and learn through what you feel you have to learn. But that then is a whole area where you just get accounts from people and whether it's actually like that or not, I, I don't know. But one argument is that uh, you're too limited if you think that consciousness is just human consciousness, because clearly it isn't. I mean, animals are conscious. And um, if you look at the majesty of some of the way insects behave, it's quite clear that they are conscious too and have a consciousness of their own. So you have to think of consciousness as being very widely distributed. Now, why do we just put ourselves in the, uh, in the form of human consciousness? Uh, if you get, um, if you look at some of the esoteric texts, some people in fact uh, get information about what it's all about and what they learn is that uh, we come here to improve ourselves, but the heavenly bodies themselves have conscious consciousness. The sun, um, you could argue, is highly conscious because it's keeping the whole thing going. Okay, I mean, we, we, we look at a little bit of it, which is just sun's rays and light and so on. But in fact, the, the argument from this point of view is that the sun is highly conscious and is running the whole show of the planets and, and so on. Then you get galaxies being conscious. And then you get super minds in the universe. So you just have to just roll with amazing data, <laughs> whether it's true or not, one doesn't know, but um, it makes a much more coherent story than just little bits of matter flying about. Yes, yes, great answer. Um, I'm just thinking I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm so passionate about having you on the show. Um, I won't keep you too much longer. Just, I guess, probably on a, a, a final question. How can we make, how can we take a more holistic approach to death and dying? I find in our culture, in our world, people are so afraid of death. Yes, and there is a whole area there which is called back, which is called existential, existential fear of death. And existential fear of death is... Um, uh, a, a real phenomenon and it's been researched now by a number of groups 
Um, if I look your uh, your listeners or viewers in the eye and say, you are going to die, I've now changed the whole, uh, the whole of their view. Um, we don't, in fact, usually go to a party and say, hi, where are you going to be buried? Um, uh, what's going to happen? We don't do that. We're terrified of death in our Western countries and don't see it as part of the natural process at all. And see what's been going on in COVID. We bond with like groups. They tend to um, uh, uh, be much more afraid of death. And that's certainly true from COVID. And there are a number of other characteristics which those with existential fear of death have. So um, what we need to do is understand this, because remember, as we come up to actual death, we carry with it our existential fear of death. So when you go into the hospice, you need to learn what we've been talking about. It's okay, there's nothing wrong with this. You're just going to move on. And if you say, and I've got some lovely accounts of people who say, well, it's all rubbish. It's all um, the body dies and that's me gone. Thanks. Bye. And when they are actually dying, it's not like that. They say, um, I want to see what's happening next. Come on, let's get on with it. And so on. And nobody saying um, I'm, I'm going to be ruled out because they all have this feeling that the process is a process, they're in the process, and it's going to continue. So it's interesting. Fascinating. Can I ask you one more question? Yeah. <laughs> um, how, how can we live our best life? How can we lead our best life? Live our best life. Oh, that's, that's a very easy and a very simple one. Be kind. Oh. That's all you have to do. Just be kind. That's lovely. And that ticks all the boxes. Beautiful. I'm just wondering on a final note, is there anything you'd like to share with the Passion Harvest audience that I haven't asked you? No, I think we've gone through death pretty, pretty extensively. I think probably what I'll say is just tell you the story of, um, I, I was giving a talk at, at, at a conference and one of the hospices nurses came up to me and remember i'm talking canada i'm talking about remoteness and i'm talking about families not visiting the dying and so she said to me nobody dies alone in my hospice and i i just couldn't believe that because they are so remote so i said why is that and she said well um when they're coming up to death and you remember that deathbed visitors come in the last fortnight she would say, who do you think is going to come and pick you up? And so they would give, you know, somebody, whoever it is. And she'd say, fine. And then the next morning she'll say, has Mary been yet? And they would say, no. And then one morning they would say, yes, she came yesterday. And then she says, well, next time she comes, you go with her. Oh. And so, in fact, their actual parting is with somebody who they know and love. Um, Dr. Peter Fenwick, it has been an absolute honour to have you on Passion Harvest and I just want to thank you again so much. 
And I would like to thank you very much uh, <laughs> at being half Australian to be able to come and visit you okay. uh, in Sydney. <laughs> It's a real pleasure. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.